listening to First Church Charlotte. Amen. Before you're seated, put your hands together one more time and give the Lord a hand clap of praise. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Amen. Amen. God bless you. You're, you may be seated. It's a joy to be in the house of the Lord with all of you. To feel his presence. I know he's real. Why? Because I feel him in my soul. Anybody feel him in your soul here? Amen. Really quickly, we have a missionary out of our church uh, because of some security reasons, which it would take time for us to explain. We're not going to say the nation they're in or their last name, but Sean and JD uh, need our prayer. Uh, Their little baby has malaria, and they are continually also continuing to be hunted by uh, some of the violent forces in the country. And so I want to do more than just pray right now. How many of you will set an alarm in your phone and pray for them every day this week? I want you to set an alarm on your phone and I want you to pray for them every day in this week. I want heaven to hear our spiritual support of where they're at. Somebody say in Jesus name. Amen. We as a church have uh, influence around the world. Uh, Firstly, through the finances that we send out to assist missions efforts around the world. It's not just foreign missions that we do. Uh, We do work here. Uh, we also do charity and, and, and help here. Um, Amanda, where are you at, Amanda? I can't see. Right back here. Um, our ch- I want you guys to know what y'all did this week. I, I didn't do it. Uh, I see you back there. Um, she is a single mother, has uh, five children. Is that right? Five or four? Four children. I'm not going to multiply them on you, sister. Don't worry. Four children. She's also the primary caregiver of her mother who is uh, home on hospice. And uh, she has been sitting in every night with all those kids and the care she's giving her, her mother. She has been having to spend two hours every day in a laundromat to stay up. So the church bought her a washer and dryer this week. I didn't do it. You did it. That's your money. And so I want you to know how, how uh, we, we want to have a heart for, for needs. And we can't do everything, but that doesn't mean we can't do anything. And so um, all around the world, we want to have an influence. And through Christ, we can do that. Can I have a big amen in the house? All right. I am on week two of freedom. And I am specifically doing this because we are starting small group here after the 11 o'clock service that will go for 12 weeks and it is entitled freedom it is a process through which we biblically work and biblically progress and it is kind of part it's step two of our growth track here at first church step one of course is going to first steps you get to meet our our teams our pastoral staff you know how we're organized uh, all of those things ask us any question about our our history our style our what how we have church what we believe all of that is a great beginning but we want you to flourish somebody say flourish uh, flourishing is God's will for each one of us I know we can I know we can learn to cope but that's not what Christ died for you to do he didn't die for you to cope he wants you to flourish and so freedom is part of that uh, I, I believe the single most hindering thing 
to our flourishing in the moment is the unhealed wounds of the past and the undelivered sins of the present. That's what freedom is about. So I'm going to continue with freedom. My title today is a subtitle is simply Refuge. Jesus is our refuge. And let's get started. I, I have actually a good ways to go, but I am going to move quickly. Um, if you want to get the notes, I would recommend you doing it today. I'm trying to cover too much in too short a time. And so if you get the notes off the website, firstchurchclt slash notes, you'll be able to follow along, add your own notes, and you'll be able to read it later because I'm not going to get to all of it today. Are you glad to be in church? Yes. Amen. I'm glad to be in church. So. All right, uh, we talked last week about that moment when Jesus stood before the synagogue and he quoted what the prophet Isaiah had said prophetically of the Messiah to come. And when Jesus steps into this role, this moment, and he reads this prophecy that is directed toward the coming Messiah, he reads it and he proclaims it as a statement of personal ministerial intent. He is stepping into the role of Messiah. He is stepping into the role of the formal son of God and not just in a kind of social way where, where we are all the sons of God. No, this is much more intentional than that. He is stepping into the role as the son of God. And he stands there and we, we read this last week in Luke chapter number four, verse number 17, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Somebody say preach. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. Say heal. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. That's deliverance. Recovery of sight to the blind. That is healing. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. That is deliverance. And finally, full circle, back to the gospel to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And I pointed out for your consideration that Jesus is repeating himself by saying three things, but saying them each twice. And so preaching the gospel is mentioned twice. Healing is mentioned twice. And finally, deliverance is mentioned twice. It is nearly impossible to understand the ministry of Jesus Christ, to understand the victory of Jesus Christ, to understand what Jesus Christ means to you and to I. It is nearly impossible to understand that without acknowledging this good news. Christ has come that we might be spiritually healed and we might be spiritually delivered. Has anybody been healed and delivered in place? I said, has anybody been healed and delivered in this house? We are each of us walking testimonies of his healing power in our life. A lot of things we don't know, but this is what we know. I once was blind, but now I am see. I see. I now have vision. I want you to understand this is God's gift. It's not just physical healing or physical deliverance. It's also spiritual healing and spiritual deliverance. So let me say it like this. Jesus is our good news. Jesus is our healer and Jesus is our rescuer. One more time. Jesus is our good news. 
He changes everything. If you haven't met Jesus, I want to introduce you to Jesus here today. He is our healer and he is our rescuer. He is our deliverer. We must have a sense, and this is difficult for us modern people, uh, we products of a postmodern society and uh, the rise of a post-Christian uh, way of being. It's, it's difficult for us to really understand our brokenness. Why is that? Because we compare ourselves one with another. And compared to you, I'm pretty good. <laughs> That just blessed me. I know it didn't bless you all that much, but it just lifted me up in my spirit. Uh, The reason why we fail to perceive our brokenness is we compare ourselves one with another. Smile at your neighbor and say, compared to you, I'm doing all right. (laughs) So, um, yeah, uh, that's why it's difficult. It is the pot calling the kettle black. And so I want to appeal to you to understand the brokenness of the human condition. And in order to do that, I'm going to have to take you on a little bit of a theological journey. It is so important that these themes will be not just in Genesis, but also in Revelation. These themes will be the most common referenced uh, image or ideal of uh, the Gospels, one of the most common theological statements that epistle writers and gospel writers try to present to you, and that is the idea of a new way of walking with spiritual sight or spiritual understanding or walking in the light, somebody, as opposed to the old way of living in the flesh, spiritually blind, or living in the darkness. And so I want you to try to see what the writers of Scripture are trying to convey when they talk about this idea of our broken our living in darkness, our ways of the flesh, our carnal mindedness, the thinking, the rationalizations of our mind, the way that seems right, but the end of that way is death. I want to start, of course, in the Garden of Eden and this story. uh, It's a very compressed story. It's almost an outline, to be honest, of something that happened on a spiritual plane in the original creation that uh, we are basically given an outline of. And it's, it's difficult for it to sound like anything more than just like a, a legend of past days or an image of, of a, a spiritual truth because it's so compressed and it's, it's, it's so much an outline uh, that it is difficult for us to see and remember that Christ oftentimes gives us insight to things that are difficult for us to understand by telling us simple stories. And so the story is compressed and the story is given to us to show us what happened in a spiritual way and on a spiritual level. And so I'm going to reference the book of Genesis chapter number three and you see a serpent and you see uh, temptation coming to uh, Eve in in the garden. The the serpent is an image of uh, the tempter, the original tempter, Lucifer, who was the first one to show a way away from serving God. Lucifer is the first one to fight 
God by exaltation of self. We'll talk about that more. And so he tempts God's creation to follow in his path. Again, not easy concepts to understand, but you won't understand human brokenness if you don't walk the road that the Bible, the Bible is giving you in these stories and in these images. And so the serpent is more cunning. Uh, any other animal that the Lord God had made and the serpent says to the woman, Question, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? I want you to notice there is a subtle switch that has happened here. Rather than a declarative statement that you accept, it is now a postulation. It is now a theorem offered in spiritual temptation. And the unspoken invitation is this. Wait for this and watch this. The unspoken temptation is this, rather than you surrendering to God, why don't you flip spiritual order and you judge what God has said? That is what has just happened spiritually. There is a subtle switch. Rather than God judging us, we are now invited by the postulate, the hypothesis of hell. That's a dramatic way to say it, but I sounded like an old-time preacher when I said it. By the hypothesis of hell, you are invited now (laughs) to sit in judgment of God. This is the moment when the creation is elevated above the creation. And so it's more than sin. It's more than fruit of temptation. It's more than something that is good to look on and good to eat. It is a way of being. Rather than surrender to what God has said, it is now evaluation, opinion, and judgment upon what God has said. Just let it settle. Just let it settle. No amens, that means you're listening. This is the beginning of human-based idolatry. I'm going to explain. So because of this temptation, because of this moment of passing judgment upon God, what has functionally happened is we have taken an opinion of good and evil into our own hands and agreeing with the tempter that God is keeping something good from us, we now, in our opinion, have found God evil. This is the embracing of good and evil in our own hands. We no longer are surrendering to his judgment, but we are judging him. This is the switch from we accept your lordship to who should be judging who. This is the beginning of spiritual idolatry within the heart. Uh, The Ten Commandments are given to us as a way uh, to understand our brokenness. Now, if you read the law and what you get out of the law is a plan to keep the law, then you fail to misunderstand either the law or you fail to misunderstand your ability to keep the law. The point of the law is to teach you that you need Jesus. Can I try this side over here? Because y'all were in Florida when I said that. The point of the law is to teach you you need Jesus. He is the fulfillment that you aren't going to make it on your own. 
You need the blood of a lamb on the doorpost of your life so judgment will pass by. If law teaches you anything else, you have failed to understand law. In the law, which should educate you of how much you need a redeemer, the first two commandments of the 10 are about idolatry. This moment of us exalting self and then deciding whether or not God is good and evil, this is the original act of idolatry. One-fifth of God's law is directly aimed at idolatry in our life. It is so natural for us to read the Bible and decide what we think about it. We don't even realize we're doing it. It's so natural for us to come to church and decide whether or not we got anything out of it. It's just how we live. It's like the old fish met the young fish and said, how's the water? And the young fish said, what's this thing called water? So long immersed in a way of being, you don't even know you are in the habit of judging God. You read the Old Testament, you decide whether or not he should have done that. This is the way of darkness. This is the natural order of the flesh. And so Paul tries to explain this, and I'm going to move through some of the images of the, te- of, the, of the Bible from Old Testament to New Testament. Paul tries to explain this in his magisterial, magisterial systematic theology we know, us, we know of as the book of Romans. He tries to explain this by talking about the consequences of this shift from a, a surrendered life to an opinion of good and evil life. A knowledge of good and evil, we decide the things that formerly had been God's decision. We hold in our hand the judgment that formerly had been God's to, God's to make. And he will write in these passages or verses 18 to 25. And it is, of course, just the brilliance of the Apostle Paul. Verse 21 tells us the reason why we turn to idols is because ultimately we want control. We want to manipulate God. We do not want God to manipulate us. Let's say it a different way. We want God to serve us. We do not want to serve God. That's why we love formulas. We want to present a system whereby we can tell God what he owes us. That's why we love formulas. And that gives us a shortcut to where we hold control in our hand and we no longer have to shiver in the presence of God and say, woe is me, I am undone. I'm a man or a woman of unclean lips. We instead have systemized God and we don't have a relational God. We have a sacred algorithm on high. Hear me, God is not an algorithm. He's relational. He will walk with you. His spirit will convict you. His word will speak to you. You need to know him. I said, you need to know him. I said, you need to know him. I said, you need to know him. I'm glad you've been in church for 300 years. You need to know him. Church is all I know. I need to know him. I grew up sleeping under church pews. I need to know him. I need to know him in suffering. I need to know him in victory. I need to know him in struggle. I need to know him in joy. I must know him. He is relational. This is why it's so tempting for us to try to come up with systems of faith or systems of everything. Now, I want to point out the problem is not the system. Many of these things are shortcuts to help us move as quickly as possible through understanding. The problem is the heart that tries to use it and make the kingdom of God work for us rather than us work for the kingdom of God. And when we do that, we're just as carnal as if we had gone out to the club last night and partied like it was 1999 and dropped it like it was hot all over town. 
It's just a different kind of carnality, but it's the exact same thing. I said, it's the exact same thing. You may not have drunk any alcohol, but this is the exact same kind of carnality. It's just with a different angle. One sin tends to be of those who are of a label sin, and another sin tends to be the kind of sins that Christians love. And I hope to be a Christian. So in his presence, it's not us telling him how good we are like the Pharisee. And the, over here is a, uh, a publican who's smiting himself on the chest and saying, woe is me, I am a sinner. And one leaves justified, one does not leave justified. We need a relationship with God. I'm not going to fight for my opinion of good and evil. I'm going to leave that with God. I am going to surrender to what God has said. I am going to obey what God has said. It's more than head knowledge. It's a way of the heart. It's a way of living. It's a manner of walking. And so... They sought to control God by this, this idolatry. That was number one. And secondly, uh, we see that they tried to exalt the self. And so you read these scriptures of, of, of consequences. Number one is deception. Verse 21, they became, their thinking became futile and their hearts became darkened. That's the result of walking in this way. Thinking is futile, hearts are darkened. The second consequence is verse 25. Uh, spiritual slavery. They worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. The reason why it's spiritual slavery is you cannot worship something without serving it. If it is unworthy of your heart, then it enslaves you. And you who are of great value, abase yourself to things that mean nothing and will perish with a great heat. It may seem fun for the while because we are worshipers and there is no option for us not being a worshiper. Worship and service are always inextricably bound together and knit, knit together and it ensnares us. Every human personality, every community, every thought form, every culture will be based on some ultimate ideal or ultimate allegiance that will either be God or some God substitute. And where you go to be whole is your idol. Where you go to be whole is your idol. And idolatry is when not necessarily something bad in the justification of the flesh. It might be something good that you've tried to lift into the level of God in your life and it cannot fulfill. A career can be a good thing. You should work as unto the Lord, the Bible says. But when you try to replace God with a career, it is now a curse in your life. Children are the gift and the heritage of the Lord, and they're a good thing. But when you try to elevate them to the level of worship, you have entered a place of spiritual slavery where you are abasing yourself to something that you are unworthy of and is a burden to you, or it's unworthy of, it, it is unworthy of, and it's a burden to you and the person who bears it, namely your, your children in your life. We must love and serve God because when we worship him, it is natural that we serve him. 
him. And so you see how Adam and Eve, from the beginning, they, they chose their own knowledge, their own opinion of good and evil. They just judged God and what God had said, and they embraced their own opinion of good and evil. And because of that, they now were stuck with the downstream consequences of what they had done. They who had seen the light and had walked with him now had embraced darkness. And they, as a result of that, had to cover up what had happened with the story of why they had done it. This is the story of all the human family. We, have, we become the children of the lie of necessity because we have embraced something that can never be an object of honorable and right worship in our life. And so we layer story upon story, excuse upon excuse. We tell ourselves we know what is good and what is bad because we know people who are worse than us. We know people who have done worse things than us. And so to the modern mind, it makes no sense to think about walking in darkness. I'm not as bad as some of the people I know, and I am better than I have been at times. And so I'm very much on the spectrum of human uh, effort, human goodness. I'm not as bad as the politicians, uh, and I'm not as good as the nurses. That's just the way I figure it out, you know. <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm somewhere in the middle, you know. I'm, 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 I, I, you, I, you do not see your own darkness. I do not see my own darkness because I am in the habit of holding good and evil in my own hands and telling myself a story of what I think about the world. And I'm a child of my own lies. And they build. And they build in my life until things that are absurd I find myself defending. And decisions that are indefensible I find myself holding. And I go to the word of God and the spirit of God slaps me with just how opposite my thinking is from a spiritual way of thinking. The result of our handling our holding, passing judgment on God is that we live in darkness. And to explain it all, we stack lie upon lie. We live as if, hear me, we live as if our standards, our opinions, our judgments reflect inherent goodness. And we argue to ourselves this position because they're acceptable to our fellow man. And we believe for the most part, we only occasionally violate that goodness. But we are deceived and we are children of the lie. We cannot pass honest judgment on good and evil. We don't even know our own hearts. And so the only right path is surrender. Put God back on the throne. Put God, I said, put God back on the throne. Worship the one who made you. Worship the creator rather than the creation. Undeify yourself. Quit deciding what you think about everything and start celebrating what God has said about everything. I want to show you our path. This is my path. I'll speak for myself, and I invite you to consider how you yourself have walked this path. We can think we are good while we are doing things that are directly responsible for spiritual death and spiritual division. While we war one with another, we think we are good. 
While one preacher criticizes another preacher, we think we are good. While one person uh, speaks ill of their brother, they think, we think, we are good. While we enjoy full stomachs and the world goes hungry, we feel like we are good. While we rob God, we feel like we are good. While we make a kingdom of service into a doctrine of self, we feel like we are good. This is spiritual darkness. The entire mission of Jesus Christ is defined, explained, and manifest as a competition between light and darkness. Just because the deed in itself is not evil by the standards of humanity does not mean it is something that you should have taken into your own hands. It might be something you should have surrendered to the mighty hand of God. This entire mission is contrast of a way of the flesh contrasting the way of the spirit. And so for the believer, we are all of us saved. We are all of us healed and we are all of us delivered by Jesus Christ, our light. We are all of us given the light of his word. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. I want you to see, he is claiming light as both identity and purpose. First, identity. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I want you to know today, if you are seeking understanding, if you are seeking healing, if you are seeking deliverance, it is found in Jesus. He is the light of the world. That is identity. And secondly, it is purpose. He who follows me, somebody say purpose. He who follows me, say it again, purpose shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Jesus says, I am the life. I am the light. If you want to walk in the light, you need to follow me. It is identity and it is purpose. But this is not natural to the flesh. Stay with me. I know I've got a lot of heavy subjects here today. And I already have stretched your brain outside of your Sunday morning 11 a.m. comfort zone. Uh, But this is deep, deep, profound theological foundations. And those of you who have served God, you need to understand and you need to invest in being able to explain and speak on on these subjects. Our flesh loves darkness rather than light. Why? Because when we hold judgment in our hands and we adhere to our opinion of good and evil, we get to blame everyone but ourselves. We don't have to trust and we don't have to surrender. We just deify ourselves and take good and evil into our own hands. This is the path of natural flesh. What is the result? Everyone does what is right in their own eyes. They hold knowledge of good and evil, and they do not surrender to God, a relational God who would lead them, who would convict them, who would leave, give them eternal life, but they take it into their own hands. This is the temptation of the flesh, and it doesn't help us to be religious. Religious people take good and evil into their own hands. In fact, I would say on uh, grading on a curve, some of the most judgmental people I have ever known were deeply religious people 
And I would remind you that every rebuke Jesus makes about darkness rather than light is spoken to religious people, not sinners. He does not talk to sinners in terms of light and darkness. He talks to religious people in terms of light and darkness. That should humble us and make us humble before the presence of God. Can I have a big amen on that? And so the world rejects truth and they embrace darkness because they are of their father, the devil. And just as he was a liar from the beginning, we became self-exalted through telling ourselves the same lie. Not that God is the ultimate determinant of good and evil, but we can decide for ourselves that which is good and that which is right and therefore we exalt the self and we judge God. We exalt the self and we judge God. And this turns into spiritual corruption in our life. When it is not even natural for us to submit, we want to argue. I want to say it again. I want you to let it hit you right between your eyes. We don't want to submit. We don't want to say, not my will, but thy will be done. What we want to say is, I name it and claim it. Do what I say as quick as possible. Don't make me come up there. Honey, you're going up there or not, but he's going to be on the throne. Do you see what I'm saying? This is the challenge. This is the way of the flesh. The way of darkness is us judging God, not God judging us. Now, we can blame Adam and Eve for the brokenness of creation, but it does us little good because we all, every day of our life, are tempted to take judgment into our own hand rather than submitting. We're tempted to tell God what he should do rather than submitting to what he has told us to do. We're tempted to tell God what we want rather than turning our heart heavenward and say, what do you want? We are daily, daily tempted. And if you want to blame Adam and Eve, hear me. How was yesterday? And did you want God to serve you or did you seek to serve God? This is the fight between darkness and light, darkness and light, darkness and light. But there is hope for us through Jesus Christ. He is our salvation. He is our healer and he is our deliverer. And so Jesus Christ has come to heal us and to deliver us. He has invited us to surrender. It's not just salvational. It is a way. Yes, we surrender in a beginning. That's salvational. But it is also a way of living. It is a way of saying, you know what's best for me. It is a way of saying, you know the way that I take. It is a way of saying, what can I do for you today? It is a way of saying, I want to behold your beauty. It is a way of saying, lead me and I will follow. It is a way of saying, uh, my talents are not my own. They are yours. My goodness, I feel the Holy Ghost. It's a way of saying, my money is not my own. It is yours. It's a way of saying, my time is not my own. My goal is not the good life. My goal is the God life. And when you learn to be a worshiper, life starts to make sense. I'm going to read, and then I'm going to try to get to my message, and I haven't got to my message yet, but it's all in your notes. So if I don't get to it, you can read later on and say, my goodness, that sure would have been good. <laughs> Romans 5, 
Paul is making sense of all this. All this stuff I talked about. All this stuff I've talked about. Yes, some theological foundations, but it's not hard. It's not above your intelligence. You can understand. And more importantly than reading the scripture and just summing it all up, you need to see the invitation of your life every day to surrender to God or to compete with God, to worship him or worship self, to prioritize his call, his kingdom, his heart, or prioritize your wishes, your wants, and your desires. It is a daily, if you want to know how hard it was for Adam and Eve, well, how hard is it for you? Romans 5 and 12, when Adam sinned, I'm reading in the New Living Translation because, well, it's awesome. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone for everyone had sinned. Yes, people sinned even before the law was given, but it was not counted as sin because there was not yet any law to break. Still, everyone died from the time of Adam to the time of Moses. Even those who did not disobey an explicit commandment of God as, say, Adam did. Now, Adam is a symbol, a representative of Christ who was yet to come. But there is a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. And the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of that one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation, but God's free gift leads to our being made right with God, even though we are guilty of many sins. Tap your neighbor and say, that part's about you. Even though you are guilty of many sins. (laughs) For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness for all who receive it will live and triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Let me say it again. He is our salvation. He is our healer. He is our deliverer. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners, but because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. God's law was given so that people could see how stinking sinful they were. Now, the stinking part is in the Nathaniel version, not the New Living uh, Translation. God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were, but all people sinned more and more. But God's not defeated. He's on your track. His wonderful grace became more abundant. So just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace, God's wonderful grace, God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He is your salvation. He is your healer. He is your deliverer. How do you know that you've been healed and delivered? I believe abundant life is best signified by overflow in our lives. So let me explain. Many of us learn how to cope, and you've turned your relationship with God into a coping mechanism. But the truth is, that's what it truly is, is a coping mechanism. You haven't been truly delivered. You haven't gone back into those wounds and seen the bomb of Gilead bring true healing in those places. Some of you went through things young in your life that you have coped with your whole life. And because you have learned to cope, 
you have not needed to be truly vulnerable with God and open your heart for true healing. And so you're not living in abundance. You're living in coping. You're making it, but you're not leaping and bounding with the joy of salvation in your spirit. As a result, the sign in your life is a lack of fruitfulness. You see, all ministry is an overflow in our life. We have more than enough for us. We, have a, we can use our vessel of a heart and a life to carry to others. And so we never get to fruitfulness because our Christianity is a coping. God has come that we might have life and we might have life more abundantly. It's not enough for you to make it. It's not enough for you to cope. You have a community depending on your overflow. So you need to be healed. You need to be free and you need to carry the Shekinah glory into your world. This is the overflow and this is why as a church we're making such a a commitment to freedom as an ongoing ministry. As an ongoing ministry, we want to be honest with one another. Repentance is great. We do that before the Lord. But the Lord teaches us and the epistle writers show us there's a lot to be gained from a culture of openness one with another and an attitude of confession one with another. Because we're always tempted to pretense. Pretense is the result of us being children of the lie. We're so used to solving our problems with telling a story that now we want to tell it to everybody. Look how good I am. Look how righteous I am. Look how holy I am. And it's hard for us to look each other in the eye and say, I need mercy. Even when I go to do something good, my flesh looks for a way to try to make it about me. Even when I commit myself to prayer, if I'm not careful, I turn it into pride. That's the way of the lie. That is walking in darkness. Don't do as the Pharisees do. Don't go where people can see you. Don't pray to be seen of men. Don't walk around like a hound dog when you're fasting. Do it for the Lord. Do it for the Lord. We cannot be children of pretense. We cannot. Okay. I don't have time to preach this, but what do Adam and Eve do when they realize they're naked? They try to cover themselves. God won't accept their covering, and neither will will he accept your covering. Your efforts are not enough. God will cover you up, and so he takes an animal. I don't have time to preach this. I'm just giving it out on a discount holiday rate. He takes an animal, and he makes a sacrifice, and he takes the bloody hide of that animal, and he covers up your nakedness with it. Self-righteousness is us trying to take the leaves of our life and cover our nakedness and live a life of pretense. Look, I'm good. How would you know? Humble yourself before the mighty hand of God. Quit making coverings of human works and leaves and say, God, if you don't cover me, I'm not going to be covered. And the precious blood of Jesus is shed and you are covered. Oh, my goodness. I'm just yelling like crazy today. So let me end with this. Musicians come and play something so people will think I'm almost done, even though you know and I know I hadn't even got to my message yet. I want to show you the complete fulfillment of prophecy in Jesus Christ. I'm going to do this very quickly. It's all in your notes. You can refer to it later. And so in the Old Testament, uh, there was even in the Old Testament a need for mercy. I want to say that again. I don't want you to be distracted. I want you to think about this. Even in the Old Testament, there was a deep, deep, deep need for mercy. And mercy is found in the Old Testament. But it is a different mercy than what we enjoy. And it is a less grace-filled 
mercy, it is much more, uh, shall we say, Old Testament, or that's code language for, it, it, there's, a, there's, 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 there's a harsher element to it. Uh, the, the system of justice in the time is primarily defined by uh, the law of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And so uh, it was easy to get a death, pr- death pronouncement over you that you, you hadn't meant to hurt anybody. And the example in the cities of refuge are, uh, for example, what if you're chopping wood one day and the axe head comes off and it flies and it kills your brother? Under the law of the land, his family has a right to hunt you and kill you. You are now in desperate need of mercy. You didn't want to hurt anybody. You might be the most gentle soul in the neighborhood, but you now have a curse. Somebody say a curse. You have a curse upon you, and they can rightly judge you for what you have done. There's a need for mercy, even in the Old Testament. And so the Lord established cities of refuge for people who need mercy. They need a second chance. Anybody ever needed a second chance? I know all those people on the platform needed a second chance, particularly Adam. He needed it more than most of us. Uh, we all need a second chance. And uh, so we need to find this city of refuge. Yes, yes. And so you see how Jesus becomes uh, the prophetic fulfillment of these images that are shown by cities of refuge because we all need uh, mercy. And if you look at these six cities, six cities in the Old Testament, uh, they are types of Christ's fulfillment in this day of grace and you actually see this image completed in the new testament in hebrews chapter number six verse number 18 where we are shown this image of us fleeing to christ for refuge and so the first city kadesh kadesh means righteousness and in christ this image is fulfilled because christ is our righteousness jeremiah 23 and 6 he shall be called the lord our righteousness second corinthians 5 and 21 for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him Kadesh means a place of righteousness it can also be translated as a place of holiness Christ has become what we could never be and that is the very personification of righteousness holiness purity and truth and we are complete in him the second city is Shisham. This means strong shoulder or this designates a place of strength and we are made strong in Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty seven. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. We are made strong through him. Uh, the third city is the city of, of Hebron. Uh, Hebron, it means fellowship. We're We've been celebrating fellowship today as one of the things our church is striving to value and make a core value. The meaning of, of Hebron is, is fellowship. First John 1 and 3, that we, that which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you, that ye also might have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We have fellowship with God. We have access to the eternal through Jesus Christ. The fourth city of refuge is uh, a Bezer. Uh, this means stronghold, strong tower, stronghold. Proverbs 18 and 10, I love this passage. The name of the Lord. What's that name? The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and they are safe. The fifth city, Ramoth. 
This is the fifth city. It means exalted. Christ fulfills this need, this image of mercy and grace in our lives. Ephesians 2 and 6. Uh, he has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He is fulfilling our need of exaltation. Ramoth, we are exalted in Christ. And finally, I love this one. The sixth city is Golan, which means joy. I want you to know today, Jesus is your joy. John 15 and 11, these things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. It's a joyous walk that God has for you today. Acts 13, 52, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Ghost. I sometimes meet people who claim the Holy Ghost and they look like they've been dipped in pickle juice. That's one of the oldest jokes in the church movement. Uh, Dipped in pickle juice, and there's another one, and they've been suckled on a lemon. Dipped in pickle juice and suckled on a lemon. That's what preachers said when I was growing up. They come to church, bless God, glad to be here. Not like them unrighteous people are sitting at home watching the NFL. Is, Is it football season yet? We're going on a 40-day fast once football scene has started. It's going to be for the men's ministry. No, just kidding. (laughs) I want you to see we have joy in the Holy Ghost. Romans 14 and 17. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace. And say it with me, joy in the Holy Ghost. 1 Peter 1 and 8. Whom having not seen ye love, in whom though now ye see him not, yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Come on, somebody. It's joy in him. And so freedom is dealing with our need for healing and our need for deliverance. These things are always seeking to creep back into our lives. The pain that the enemy has been so successful at limiting your ministry with if you get victory, he's not going to just give up and move to Florida. He's going to try to bring it back. He's going to bring it back to your mind. We must be free indeed because then we are overflowing and out of that abundance comes ministry and ministry is how we change our worlds and impact our communities. And so as a church, it starts next Sunday. You can sign up for it on the church website. It's capped at about uh, 12 to 15 people, but it will be repeating because in the growth track of our church, first is our first step small group that I I do most of the teaching in that introduction to our church but the second thing you do after you've gone through that is freedom it's a 12 week Bible study on how God is not just getting you out of Egypt he's getting Egypt out of you this is what it means to become a disciple of Jesus Christ and you won't have arrived at after 12 weeks but you will have a toolbox of spiritual understanding whereby you can war effectively against the carnal 
fleshly nature and the spirit of the enemy in your life. And so I'm believing in the coming days the Lord to use this tool as a great spiritual awakening. And I am believing all, I want you to know everyone who comes into our church is going to be directed through this. But more, I want everyone in our church eventually to go through this because I believe I've been through the material. It is just as valuable if you've been serving God 30 years as if you have been serving God three months. It is just as valuable. Knowing how to put him first in your life. Knowing how to live a life of godliness and focus upon him and his gift. This is the path and it is the way to spiritual abundance in our life. Would you stand with me all across the house? We're going to move into our prayer service now. We do this every Sunday. I know there's needs here today and I want to make a place for that for those for that that unified prayer and faith that we have together and uh, before I do that though I feel like there's somebody who you need you you feel a need to acknowledge a desperate need of a change of direction in your life and I feel like it would help you in a moment of confession to be the first to step out and to come and lift your hands in this altar and I, I know it's not for everybody today But those of you who will, I I, want to invite you right now to step out and come down to this altar as a way of of confession. We have one right here, brother. I've been praying with my brother. God's done great things in him recently, but he needs continual anointing in his life. I I just want to take a moment. I know we don't do this most Sundays, but I feel like there's some value in this that maybe we don't always, we don't always. This is a public confession here. This is a confession saying if God doesn't do it, ain't nobody going to do it. So I'm pausing. In a moment, we're all going to come. But right now, I want those of you who, you, you, there's got to be a direct, there's got to be a change in the way, in the way. Step out right now. That's right. God bless you, my sister. We love you. I love you guys. It's courage. I think God's going to meet you here. Now, church, if you have a need, I want you to feel free to come. If you need healing, tell you what, if you need healing, I want you to come over to this side right here. If you have any other need, I want you to come up, kind of come to this side. And I'm going to have my pastoral team begin to move among you and speak the name of Jesus over you. But this whole service is going to turn into a prayer time right now. And we're going to begin to speak the name of Jesus. I, I don't want you to leave here the way you came. I want you to have the confidence to claim some things spiritually. So in just a moment, our worship team is going to come, and I'm going to invite everyone, but I want to give a moment more. If you want to be declarative today, that's what stepping out is. You're being declarative. You're being declarative. That's right. I feel, I feel such a presence of the Lord here today. I, I really, really pray that you have a sense of God's wooing of you. Remember, He'll never kick your heart, your heart door down. <laughs> He'll never kick your, your door in. He's going to woo you sense of the kingdom of God and see how far you want to progress in it. There will be an open door, but you're going to have to step into it because he's not going to force it upon any of us. Not me, not you. It's just not the way he works. But there is an effective open door of healing, deliverance, salvation in Jesus Christ. It would be a shame to make it barely. You understand what I mean by that? I know we love to say things like, well, I just want a cabin in the corner of glory. I understand, look, I I get it. But here's the thing. God did not go through all that he went through so you could barely make it. 
He wants you to be a living evangel known and read of men. A living evangel known and read of men. And you are well able. First of all, God has done a completed work for you. It's done. You just need to claim, believe, progress. Not only that, God's put you in a church that believes in you. This church believes in you. This preacher believes in you. You can find people who are better preachers than me. You can find people who are better looking than me. You can find people who have more money than me. You can find people who are more submitted to their wives than me. But you're going to have to go a good ways to find somebody who believes in you more than I do. I want you to feel that. I'm constantly inviting you into ministry. I'm constantly, I want our church to feel like that. We're inviting you to make it a, an impact in your world. Uh, if you haven't signed up for a small group, go to our website. You can see small groups in the area. Uh, we want to not just have vertical celebration of what God has done and who He is. We want to manifest that we see Him by having horizontal charity, affection, acceptance one to another. Uh, all life change happens in the context of relationships. It does. You can't remember five messages you've heard. The last five messages besides this one you can't remember unless the preacher was in a long series that helps but you can't name five people who changed your life change happens in relationships and i want to invite you to go to the website look for that small group if you're not in a small group then I, we're going to have one more opportunity for you starting this month not this week next week what we have traditionally called in reach we're just calling small groups week because we have too many labels. It's confusing. We're just, it's just, we, we have two things we do. We do weekend services. We do Wednesday night Bible study. That's corporate. And then we do small groups. Everything is small groups. It's simple and it's biblical. And that really helps if something's biblical. I've, I've noticed that. Um, I mean, it makes me sleep better at night anyway. It's, it's biblical. So um, that, that's the two structures. Um, all of our pastoral staff, because we're spread out all over the city, uh, we'll be opening up our homes, not this week, next week. And if you live up by the lake, you'll, we'll, there, there'll be a home that you go to up there. If you're in Concord, there'll be homes that you go to in Concord. Um, if you live in Winston-Salem, you're doing your own thing. Um, but if, if you're in Fort Mill, we have, we'll have a home for Fort Mill. We'll have another home for Lake Wiley. We'll have another home for Pineville. Probably we have a southern church. But anyway... Um, we are opening our homes. So if you have a small group and they plan something for that small group week, which is next week, you go support your small group. If you're not in a small group, in spite of me asking for that horizontal connection, um, you will go to one of our pastor's homes on small group and uh, small group week. And this will be a great way for us to instigate. So lastly, if you don't want to do any of that, sign up for my small group. I have two. I do them all on Sunday. <laughs> I do first steps. Today's lesson three, understanding what it means to be a spirit-filled church. That's lesson three. If you haven't had lesson three, while I was preaching, I was over next door also cooking because I have multiple personality syndrome. No, my team was over cooking. Come, we'll talk. Also starting next week, me and my staff starting freedom same thing i'll teach about a third of the lessons other ones in our staff 
Anthony will probably teach the most, but um, Anthony uh, and myself and occasionally some of our other pastoral staff, we will be dealing with these subjects and it is going to be a great thing because we're connected to him and we're connected to one another. Can I have a big amen? amen. Lord, bless your people. I speak your blessing over them. Let them have a victorious week. I said, let them have a victorious week in Jesus' name. Let us not be ignorant of how the enemy attacks us and tries to hinder us. Let us see through the lies of the enemy and let us represent your kingdom in the earth. In Jesus' name we pray. And can the church say amen. One more time, give the Lord a hand clap of praise as you're dismissed. Church Charlotte. If this podcast has blessed you, please rate it with four stars. By doing so, you will help others find it and also bless them. If you're in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, come worship with us at 4929 North Sharon Amity Road. For information about service times and church ministries, visit us online at firstchurchclt.com. If you would like to help support our efforts, text GIVE to 704-445-5353. We pray God's richest blessings to you. Come, worship with us.